Please turn with me back uh, to our uh, passage in 2 Samuel chapter 3. This evening we are looking at a very extended uh, passage of scripture and uh, it reminds me of when we were going through the book of Exodus together and we came to the passage on the ten plagues uh, that came against Egypt. And in one sense you could look at each plague uh, in isolation and you could see what God is doing in bringing those particular judgments. Uh, But you can also look at them collectively to see the overall thrust of what was being communicated when God brought those judgments on the people and on the land of Egypt. And in a similar way, as we're coming here to 2 Samuel this evening, we could look at uh, all that is happening here in isolation. We could think about what is happening with Abner and this character Job or Joab, and we could think about uh, Ishbosheth, and we could try and uh, really pull apart this period of about seven years uh, to see what is happening at this time in Israel's history. But I want us instead to be able to pull it together and to see in a big picture uh, what is taking place uh, and why it is that David uh, ascends as king ultimately in the land. Second Samuel chapter uh, 3 and beginning at verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second, Chiliab, of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third, Absalom, the son of Maka, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagi, and the fifth, uh, Shef. Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth Ithriam of Egla, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, Ai. and Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and and have not uh, given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word, because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael. 
for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel and the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away, so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you, and to know your going out and your coming in, and to know all that you were doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died, for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord. For the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at uh, Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me and more also, if I taste bread or anything till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. 
So the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Bana, and the name of the other was uh, Rechab, sons of Ramon, uh, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gitaim and had been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Ramon the Beerothite and Rechab, uh, Rechab and Bana set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth, as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. And when they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of Arabah all night, and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Bana his brother, the sons of Ramon the Berethite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed him and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Sometimes you'll see uh, a, a commercial or a movie trailer uh, that shows you a very short clip of a movie. And that trailer is meant to excite you about what the whole story entails. In that short uh, commercial or in that short trailer, they might show you action sequences. They might show you intriguing characters. They might show you intense moments that make you want to see the whole story. And this evening, as we're turning back to 2 Samuel, uh, we are looking at a very intriguing time in Israel's history. And as we've been highlighting, as we read through these passages, it is a time that is marked by action. There's battles. There's what look like gladiatorial uh, contests. It's also marked by betrayal. It's also marked by personal feuds. 
And it would be exciting for us to simply unpack and to look at all of these different uh, micro stories. But we want to turn to 2 Samuel this evening to look at it in light of God's unfolding purpose. We're looking at how it is that David becomes king. How it is that God's kingdom is taking shape under a Davidic ruler. And how it is that it transitions from a kingdom under Saul and his dynasty, ultimately to a kingdom under David and his offspring. And as we've read uh, this evening three chapters, if we want to summarize what we're looking at, you can turn there to the beginning of chapter 3. It says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And we want to simply unpack what that is entailing for us this evening. And we want to see that because God has established his king, uh, we are to acknowledge him. And what we want to really see too is, is that as we look at the kingdom of God, as it finds expression under David, is, is that the kingdom will be established, even if it is not immediately embraced by all. It will be established, even if it is not immediately embraced by all. And so we want to think about uh, the uh, establishment of God's king. And then secondly, uh, looking at these chapters in light of the elevation uh, or the exaltation of God's king. First, there is the establishment. Uh, we have, in looking at the, the story of Israel, you remember that the Philistines had attacked and won a great victory over the people of Israel in battle. And King Saul had died in that battle. And news has now come to David telling him that uh, Saul is dead. And you remember that David himself lamented over the death of Saul, the man who had been trying to kill him. It did not bring joy to David's heart to know that Saul was now dead. Instead, it was something of a grief that he lamented that Israel had lost something. They had lost their, their leader. And he himself had lost uh, Jonathan, uh, who had been a great support to him. But now that these things have come to his attention, we're told in chapter 2 that David inquired of the Lord, should he now go to one of the lands, uh, one of the cities of Judah? Uh, we're not told exactly how David inquired of the Lord here, but uh, judging by the past, it would probably be by the high priest, Abiathar, who would be able, through the casting of lots, be able to give discernment as to the Lord's will. And uh, ultimately, what is important is, is that David here, his response is not one of seizing an opportunity. It is not trying to grasp something by force, but rather David's response is is marked by obedience to God's will. He is one who is looking for direction from God. As we were singing in Psalm 25, teach me in the way that I should go so that I would follow your ways. David here is asking the Lord to teach him, to tell him what he should do next. And he is told, he asks if he should go up to one of the cities of Judah. There's lots of reasons why David would think about going to Judah. David was from Judah. The prophet Gad had told David to go back to Judah earlier. But most important of all, David had friends in Judah. You remember when David had recovered the spoils from the Amalekites, he sent gifts to the elders in Judah. 
And so David has a great support. There's a support base in Judah uh, for him. And so he is asking, he is, he is inclined to think that Judah would be the place to go. But even there, he's looking for affirmation and for confirmation from God before he moves. And so he is told to go up. To, to Now is the time for David to assume uh, the position of king. And he looks for even more specificity. He says, to which shall I go up? And he is told to go to Hebron. Hebron was an important place in the Old Testament narratives dealing with Abraham. It was at Hebron that Abraham built an altar to the Lord after God had promised him that his offspring would be as numerous as the, as the dust of the earth. It was at Hebron uh, that, uh, that Abraham... Uh, uh, purchased a plot of land. You remember that to his descendants was given the promised land. And it was there that Abraham purchased a plot to bury uh, his wife. And so when you think about Hebron, you're thinking about the promises of God, his blessing to his people, to Abraham and his offspring. Blessings that would be numerous, but also that would extend to all the nations of the earth. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so the fact that David here is being told, go to Hebron, is a signal that what is happening now with David becoming king has enormous significance in the unfolding of God's purposes, of how it is that he is going to communicate his blessings. It is through his chosen king and through the establishment of his kingdom. And so he is told uh, to go to Hebron. Uh, but as he is uh, doing so, it is his uh, kingdom, his kingship is being established by the appointment of God. But it is also something that is acknowledged by men. You notice that in verse 4. The men of Judah came and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. That's something that is stressed three times in these opening verses. He becomes king over Judah. He is king of Hebron. David is established as a king. And so what has been appointed by God is something that is approved and uh, uh, confirmed as well by men. But there's something in this that should stand out about David's kingship. He is acknowledged by the tribe of Judah, but only by the tribe of Judah. David becomes king in Israel, but of only one tribe. David's beginnings then are beginnings of obscurity. His kingdom is a very small thing from its inception, as only one tribe affirms him. And over the next seven years, it'll take movements to happen before David's kingship is something that is embraced by all of Israel. And so his kingdom is something that begins small and obscure, but over time it grows. It becomes stronger and stronger, whereas the house of Saul, the house of Ishbosheth, becomes weaker and weaker. And we want to see how that is unfolding and what that tells us. That's something that is true even of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus, isn't it? Jesus taught that about the kingdom of God, that he said it's like a mustard seed. The, the tiniest of all seeds, but it grows into a great tree. It grows into a great 
plant and that all the birds of the heavens will come and find refuge in, that Jesus was highlighting that his kingdom is one that also begins very small, but also very obscure. It is not embraced by everyone when it comes, but it will be established and it will grow because it is approved in God's sight. It has success written into it because God is behind it. And so that's, that's even true even in our own time. Even at present, we live in a world where Christ is king. And yet the writer of Hebrews says, even now, we don't see everything in subjection to his feet. But his kingdom is growing. His kingdom continues to get stronger and stronger. And so as we live, even now, we're living by faith, knowing that God's purposes will be successful. And that was true as well back in the time of David. We might look at this time period and think it's all uh, very simple. Saul has died. And it would seem like there's an open door for David to simply walk in and to become king. And yet the reality is, is it was much more complicated than that, wasn't it? It takes seven years, seven and a half years before all of Israel comes around him. Why is that? One reason is is because of the Philistines. You remember that the Philistines won that battle against Israel at Mount Gilboa. But when they won that battle, they basically drove a wedge right through the middle of Israel, dividing the north and the south. The nation of Israel is no longer uh, pulled together as it once was. And it tells us there at the end of 1 Samuel that when the Philistines won the battle... The people in the surrounding villages of Mount Gilboa abandoned their towns and the Philistines took up residence. They were occupying these places within the land of Israel. So you have the problem of a fact that the foreign enemy has taken over much of your land. The success of the Philistines is part of the problem. But there's more uh, to the complexity than that. There's also the succession of Saul's dynasty that you remember that Jonathan was willing to remove any claim to the throne himself. Instead, he was committed for David's success, that David's enemies would be his enemies, that he himself would stand at David's side and David would be king. Jonathan did not lay claim to the throne, but that didn't mean that everyone in the house of Saul was of that mindset. That didn't mean that everyone from even the tribe of Benjamin was of that mindset. There would be many that would continue to want to affirm uh, a sense of continuity and succession in the dynasty of Saul. And so uh, we we see that uh, happen. Even when uh, David appeals to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, these were men who were loyal to Saul. They had been delivered by Saul. They had been rescued by him many years ago. But now they had risked their lives to give him a proper burial, highlighting their devotion to Saul. And so that is true not just of the men of Jabesh-Gilead, it is true of others as well. They would have remained loyal, naturally, uh, to the lineage of Saul. And as we discover, not all of Saul's sons had died. There was still one Ish-bosheth, who was uh, a son of Saul. So there was... The success of the Philistines, 
There was the loyalists uh, to the dynasty of Saul. Uh, but then thirdly, uh, one could also uh, wonder if there were questions surrounding David. You remember that David had escaped. Uh, he had fled from the land of Israel because the king of Israel, Saul, had uh, declared him to be a threat and an enemy of Israel. Uh, David had left the land of Israel and had gone to the Philistines. And so there could be uh, question marks around David as well. Who is this man uh, uh, that would be uh, presenting himself uh, as a king as well? So there's a, a, um, there's a complexity about David becoming king, even while he is acknowledged by the men of Judah. It is not uh, something that was immediately embraced by all. But we said, uh, and we highlighted there in chapter 3, it says that David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And we want to see that uh, what happens, uh, how that happens is in a twofold fashion. First, uh, the kingdom of David uh, grows stronger and stronger uh, because of the weakening uh, effects of Saul's dynasty. And secondly, by the recognition of David's integrity. First, then, uh, it is what happens to Saul's dynasty. In chapter 2, it tells us that Abner, the son of Ner, uh, was the commander of Saul's army. And he took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahene, and he made him king over Gilead. And uh, the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Uh, Abner uh, makes another king. And so now there are two kings in Israel. But when Abner does this, Abner is not simply setting up Ishbosheth as king. He is rejecting David and David's claim to the throne. He's not just establishing or putting up one. He is actually rejecting God's chosen king at the same time. And there's a long history between Abner and David. Abner has known David since the time of David versus Goliath. He was the one who presented David to Saul. He was the one who was there listening when Saul confessed to David after David spared his life. Saul confessed, David, you will do great things and you will succeed in them. Abner heard those words. Abner even knew about the promise that David would become king, as it highlights in chapter 3. He knew the promise but he still didn't embrace it because Abner was living for himself. Abner was living to protect his own pursuits, his own interests. He was living for number one. And for Abner, it was better that the dynasty of Saul continued than that it should end. And as the commander of Israel, he sought to promote its interests, even knowing that God had said they were to come to an end. And so let that settle in. Abner knew the truth about David. He knew the promise about David. He knew Saul's confession about David. He knew these things, and yet he still rejected them. Because there's more to faith than simply knowledge. There is an embrace of that. It is a trusting in that that shapes the life of a believer. But Abner's pursuits were still focused on his own, uh, his own self. He was living uh, for number one. 
And so he ultimately rejected uh, David. And so he sets up uh, this rival king in Ishbosheth. But not only does he set up a rival king uh, in Saul's son, but we're told that Abner takes the position of the aggressor. Uh, you notice in verses 12 and following that there becomes this battle between the two sides. And as one commentator points out, geography does not lie. And it tells us that Abner moved his men down towards the border uh, within eight kilometers of Jerusalem, asserting their claim and asserting themselves. And ultimately, it leads to this encounter between the two commanders, the commander of David's army and the commander of Saul's dynasty, uh, Joab and Abner. And they had this contest, much like a gladiatorial uh, battle, which ultimately leads or ends in the death of the men who were involved. And then a fierce battle takes place. And in the end, it tells us that while death happened on both sides, David's side clearly came out the victor. They were much stronger than Saul's side. But all of this is highlighting something of the, the weakening of Saul's dynasty. They cannot conquer David's men. They cannot defeat them in battle. But then we see more of the weakening of it in the, the inherent conflict within Saul's dynasty itself. It tells us in chapter 3 uh, that uh, how both of them uh, were seeking to get stronger. And you notice here that while David in many ways is a picture of what the greater king ought to be, uh, David was not perfect. He was a polygamist. And David has now six wives at this point. And those wives are uh, no doubt partly political. David is trying to strengthen his uh, political alliances by drawing uh, these different marriage alliances together. Uh, and Abner is also described as getting stronger. He's getting stronger though, and it tells us that Ishbosheth challenges him or questions him about why he takes the concubine of Saul, his father. That was a serious charge because in the ancient world, to take the concubine of a former ruler was essentially to lay claim that you are the successor. You are the next ruler yourself. And so really he is challenging Ishbosheth or accusing him of trying to uh, usurp or to become king himself. But the result of that accusation is, is ultimately that Ishbosheth uh, severs all alliances with Saul's dynasty. And instead, he says, I'm going to make sure I vow before God to make David's dynasty succeed. But notice, his purposes haven't changed. It's not that, that he has suddenly become faith-filled or he's doing it for theological reasons. He's still doing it out of self-pursuit. He's now concluding that it's better in his own self-interest if he no longer supports Ishbosheth, And so he is now going to make an alliance with David to help David's uh, kingdom grow and prosper. And so David uh, demands the wife, uh, uh, his first wife, Michael, again, something that is probably as much political as it is romantic, uh, that he is trying to show a unity uh, amongst the people of Israel uh, by showing a, a connection uh, with Saul's line. Um, and ultimately, uh, we see that this is uh, something that takes place. Uh, we are told that uh, Abner then approaches all the elders of Israel 
And he says, for some time past, you have been seeking David as king over you. And now then, bring it about. Uh, for the Lord has promised David, uh, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people, Israel, from the hand of the Philistines. So Abner here is acknowledging that this was God's promise. And he is now uh, calling on the elders to give their loyalty to David. And then there's this encounter with David and a feast that happens. And then David sends him away in peace. But we're told that something happens as a result. Joab, David's commander, hears about this, this alliance, this covenant that is being formed. And he challenges David and he says, what have you done? Do you not know that Abner came here to deceive you and to know about your goings and your goings out? Joab challenges David here about much wrongdoing in entrusting himself to Abner. And then he goes out and he kills Abner for, what, uh, for coming to David. Now, Joab might have rationalized in his head that he really didn't trust Abner in this switch of his loyalties. He might have uh, rationalized or reasoned with himself that you can't trust this man. He might have even told himself that what he was doing was really to protect David. And yet the real reason why he was doing that was vengeance. The reason why he killed Abner was because Abner killed his brother in that battle. And he was holding this personal grudge that wanted revenge against this man. In that earlier battle, you remember how there was a detailed discussion about how Asahel had pursued Abner. Asahel was Joab's brother, and Abner had tried to uh, discourage him from chasing after him. But Asahel wouldn't listen, and reluctantly, Abner defended himself and killed Asahel. But Joab continued to have this longing for vengeance, Vengeance that, according to the word of God, he didn't have the right to. Something that happened in battle and something that happened reluctantly uh, as a matter of self-defense. But Joab was not a person that was ruled by the word of God. He was someone who was ultimately ruled by his passions. And he wasn't so much different than Abner in that sense. Abner looked out for number one. He knew the truth. And he didn't care. He rejected the truth. He was willing to fight against David being king. Because it was in his best interest, he thought, to keep himself as commander. Ab, uh, Joab was someone who was willing to do what he wanted to get what he wanted. He wasn't concerned about living under circumspectly under the word of God. He was not someone who was going to be accountable ultimately. And we see that what is true in Abner is not something that is unique to Abner. That's something that comes up in anyone that is resisting God's truth. When we know the truth and yet push it away and reject what God has said, God's will, because we want to live as our, our, own, uh, our own people. So how is it uh, that uh, the, the kingdom of David is established? It is established by God's appointment. It is acknowledged by men. But it is something that is elevated because the rival kingdom is crumbling under its own weight. That Ishbosheth and Abner and these men are living devoid of God's will. 
and ultimately they crumble under its weight. Whereas David is a man who separates himself from the violence of these men. He distances himself from the violence of, uh, of Joab. He calls a curse down upon his, a fivefold curse down on Joab's household. He distances himself from the, the violence of the men, the captains of Ishbosheth's uh, kingdom, who ultimately killed uh, the king, or the, the prince, as David calls him. David was showing that this was not how his kingdom would be established. It is not a matter of violence that the kingdom of God will succeed, but rather it is by God's grace that it will succeed. And that is ultimately how the kingdom of God advances even today. It's not by force, but it is by the truth of God's word. It is by the work of God's grace that people come to embrace uh, the Lord Jesus, to believe in him. When Jesus came into this world, we're told that not everyone believed in him. He came to his own, and his own received him not. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. It was an obscure beginning. It might not look like much in terms of a kingdom. And yet the scriptures tell us that like a mustard seed, Christ's kingdom will succeed. It will grow stronger and stronger because God is behind it. And that the kingdoms of this world that live in rivalry to it will self-destruct. And so here Christ calls us like he called, like David called the men of Jabesh Gilead. He called them to take heed to the fact that Saul was dead and to acknowledge that David is king. So Christ comes to us this evening and he gives us a message to acknowledge that he is king. And we cannot serve two masters. We must have a king. Are we looking to Christ as our king? Do we recognize that this is God's work and that in Christ there is success? Or are we living like Abner and Joab, living to pursue our own self, living for our own passions, which will ultimately end in disaster? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think over your word, that we would see that it is not simply a history book, but that it teaches us and confronts us about our own desires and our own pursuits. Lord, we pray that we would seek first the kingdom of God and that we would recognize the integrity of the Lord Jesus Christ, one who rules with perfect wisdom, one who is perfect in his judgments, and one who is worthy of our trust.